Hi, I am Mia Lee Vicino, and this is a very special episode of The Letterboxd Show. No, no, it is not about our watch lists nor an awards show, but it is about one of my four faves, Down With Love 2003, directed by Peyton Reed. Yes, 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 it is the 20th anniversary of this classic Renee Zellweger and Ewan McGregor starring ode to 1960s Doris Day Rock Hudson sex comedies like Pillow Talk and Lover Come Back. So, with that in mind, I sat down with the director of the movie himself, Peyton Reed, to talk about this landmark anniversary. We chatted about the difference between Barbie and Barbara Novak shades of pink, the origin of that grand finale musical number, and the response to this misunderstood feminist masterpiece itself over the years. Even if you haven't seen it, if we did our jobs right, maybe you'll end up adding it to your own watch list. Cheers! Here's to 20 years of Down With Love. Down with things that give you that well-known pain Take that moon, wrap it in cellophane this is one of my favorite movies of all time. I just have to get that out of the way. It's in my top four on Letterboxd, which is a pretty big honor. Wow, that's great. Because I want to I wanna get into some, some Letterboxd data um, because Down With Love is what we call a, a high riser in the sense that its rating just keeps going up and up and up and up as the years go on. Like I, I have some hard data. I have some numbers. I love it. Yes. So when when it first launched, like in 2011, you know, it was it was a lot of men on the app. The average rating was it was a sadly low 2.9. When I discovered it in 2016, it was at 3.1. So like I went in expecting it to be fine. And then I came away just like blown away. I was like, this is the best movie I've ever seen in my life. It's my new favorite movie. This is amazing. And just since then, you know, millions more members have joined and many of them are women and members of the LGBTQ plus community. And as a result, it's it's gone up and now it's at uh, 3.5. Last year, its average was 3.7. Um, do you have any speculation about its, its contemporary reclamation? Well, I'm just thrilled to hear that people are finding the movie because, you know, it's... Uh for a while there, it was kind of hard to find. It's not on any, uh, it was never released on Blu-ray or much less 4K Blu-ray. I know it showed up, I think, on HBO Max for a while, and I think people are finding it now. But um, I'm thrilled that, you know, 20 years later, people are watching the movie. I think it's, um, you know, I, I know we famously opened opposite Matrix Reloaded when we came out in 2003. <laughs> it was uh, Fox's idea of counter-programming. Um, and I think even I went to see Matrix Reloaded that weekend. But the... Um, the idea that like every filmmaker, if their movie doesn't set the box office on fire when it comes out, hopes that people will see the movie. To me, it's never about like a box office number. It's just about you. You work on a movie. You want people to see it, right? That's the whole point of the endeavor. So um, I'm thrilled to hear that people are discovering this movie. And we knew what we wanted to do with this movie at the time. And I think even in 2003, this was never a sure bet. Uh, you know, that audiences are going to go see. It's a very, very specific exercise in terms, even even in terms of a romantic comedy. And, you know, but I, I think it was something, you know, from even Dennis's script and, and uh, Dan Jinks and Bruce Cohen and I, we were all so psyched about what this movie could be. You, you mentioned that DVD, um, which I do have right here. It is the, <laughs> it is my only pink DVD. I love the pink very, nice. very much. And um, I'm glad you brought up how it's not on Blu-ray or Pink Ray or or any of that yet. And I was I was wondering if if that is 
could ever be a possibility because I'm begging for it. <laughs> we're we're in talks and, you know, uh, Steve Scott, who's the colorist, this is how long ago this was. Not every movie was digitally colorized at that point. And we went through an exercise where we did a photochemical color correct and this guy, Steve Scott, at a company called eFilm at the time, uh, decided to try doing this uh, new DI process, a digital intermediate. And that's what we did on the movie to try and achieve this, you know, technicolor vibe. But Steve has, you know, since gone on to do like every major beautiful movie that's released. And he's like, I want to do this. We've got to find a way and get it on a 4K uh, Blu-ray. And now, of course, since Disney has purchased Fox, you know, the, you're always paranoid that these things are just going to go in a vault somewhere. So we're, we're working on that. I, I would love it. Okay, I'm I'm glad to hear that because also um, on Letterboxd, Sean Baker, director of the Florida Project, reviewed the film and he wrote, "I don't know where I was in 2003, but I was obviously under a rock. I knew about this title but didn't know anything about it, and I'm really impressed. Watched on DVD and would like to revisit in HD because there is so much detail in the production design and art direction, hilarious script and performances, not a single nomination from the Academy or Golden Globes. If this was a 2018 film." it would be a major contender. Oh, that's, well, that's, that's, well, that's lovely to hear. I'm a big fan. I, the Florida Project, I love. I, I, so that's, that's a delight to hear. But yeah, I feel like there is so much detail, the production design, and, you know, we have beautiful uh, anamorphic prints of the movie. And, you know, if you see it projected, it's, uh, it's really, really, really vivid. So that is a goal is to try and get it in 4K. I think at this point, if you're going to do IDF transfer, you do it at least in 4K. Yes. Yeah, and um, speaking of of awards, so the AARP was one of the only organizations who were brave and smart enough to give this movie a very, very, very deserved award, which was Best Time Capsule. And um, touching on that production and, <laughs> and costume design again, um, they're so immaculate. And I was wondering, of all the fifty five different sets that were built, what was what was your favorite? Well, I think it's hard to beat for me Barbara Novak's apartment. Uh, that was one of the things when we first did pre-production paintings and we did even the paintings in the style of these uh, 60s pre-production paintings. There was an artist named Tom Lay uh, who at that time had been around for a long time and the style of this art was done, you know, the way you would have done it in 1962. Uh, but that set was one of the key ones that we, as we were at Fox 2000, were sort of selling the visual palette of the movie that was one of the first things we decided. You know, we wanted to show Barbara Novak's apartment and Catcher Block's apartment and those those massive, massive sets just to say, you know, this is, this is going to feel different than a contemporary romantic comedy. It is, you know, an homage to a 60s sex comedy and, and these sets were, were bigger and, and more colorful and, and stylized. So I think that one is still my favorite. And for me, <clears throat> the thrill of being able to go to these companies, the, the, the painted canvas backings that we use throughout the movie are all original from movies they shot during that period. So we had to bring them out of storage and sort of freshen them up. But these stages, these, these sets were so massive. Uh, and it's, uh, it, it really does, as I think back on 20 years ago, weirdly, it seems longer than that because I don't know, I think it would be very, very hard to get uh, this movie made today. It was hard then. I think it would be even harder now. Oh, I think I think we're even readier now. I mean, I noticed in the in the Barbie trailer, there's a shot that is so similar. It's when she's stepping into the shoe. I was like, I've seen this in Down with Love when Barbara <laughs> Novak steps into the shoe. You know? So yes. I don't know. Yeah. I think I think we're ready this time. 
We uh, <laughs> I remember having uh, discussions with Andrew Laws, our production designer, and Dan Orlandi, uh, who did our amazing wardrobe, about the particular Down With Love shade of pink. And everyone was insistent, this is not Barbie pink. This is an earlier, this is a 1962 pink, which was a very different, uh, more muted pink than the sort of uh, really, really vibrant pink of the Barbie era. There were all these insanely detailed conversations about, you know, how everything design-wise and color-wise changed from the beginning of the 60s to the end of the 60s. I'm, I'm glad you were bringing up the pink in the wardrobe because the costumes are also some of my favorite works of art in film. And, and I love how they were each like custom designed for the actors, which, you know, you really got more in, in older films. Um, do, you have a, do you have a personal favorite costume? All, listen, all of you in suits in the movie are just, they're, they're beautiful. But I mean, we always loved Dan Orlandi was the perfect person to do wardrobe on the movie. I mean, this was, as he, I think, said in the behind the scenes back then, you know, this was his dream job. And he's done such amazing work before and since. But this, I think, you know, he will, he'll still tell you, like, this was the movie I was put on planet Earth to, to design. And, you know, all the sort of, you know, the yellow and the black and white houndstooth, the stuff that... um Sarah Paulson and, and Renee are wearing in those scenes was, was really fun. I mean, they became characters. The wardrobe would become characters in the movie. And they were such expressions of these characters and what they were trying to do. But it was that, that time where if you're doing a movie now, you know, you have wardrobe and you want it to look lived in and aged. And in those movies, you wanted it to look like it was, you know, just that was the first time anyone had ever worn it. And it was so vibrant and not a not a speck of dust on it. It was a whole different philosophical approach to it. Yeah, I, I loved the special feature about the costumes. Um, he seemed so, so, so excited to be working on that movie. I mean, just everybody who was working on the movie seemed so happy. And I know movie making is really hard, but it seemed like this set was such a blast to be on. It was fun to make. I mean, I think it all began with Eve Allard and Dennis Drake's script. Mm. And that script from the very beginning you know, and writers are not always this way in script format. They were so hyper-specific about everything, everything that they wanted you to see in the movie um, and the incredible detail. And Eve, I think particularly, has such a sense of that period in, in terms of pop culture, music, wardrobe and everything. And she's such a New Yorker that the level of detail and the references are so specific to that time. But you could read that script and it was already very, very visual. Um, and it was visual in terms of the tone, the pace, uh, the sort of relentlessness of the, the uh, visual comedy. And for me at that time, I had finished doing, uh, I had finished doing Bring It On. And I wanted to do another comedy and I wanted to do something that was a very visual comedy, something that was sort of an offbeat thing. And I read that script and I was just blown away by it. I was blown away that a major studio was going to make it potentially. Uh, but I was blown away by the specificity and I didn't think there was anything out there like that. And I thought it could be, I thought it was genuinely funny. I mean, I laughed out loud multiple times reading a script, which is is quite rare. <laughs> and I also felt it could be romantic. And then I thought it had a lot to say about everything, about, you know, gender and just, you know, what's changed and what hasn't changed between 1962. And at that time when we shot it, you know, 2002. Um, and I just, it, it, it's a rare script that I think drove everybody. And in terms of the mood, it just, it drove the mood on, on the set because I think everybody was so excited that this movie was, was being made and that the script was so unique. 
that we just, it, it, it fed everyone. Oh, I love the script so much. I love how how it never frames Barbara as being in the wrong for writing this book. You know, like uh, feminists in film can so often be portrayed as, you know, like a scold or frigid or, or, you know, these stereotypes. But she's so fun and flirty and capable and she's defying stereotypes in a movie that is very intentionally chock full of them. Um, and I just, yes. I yes, I, I love, I really, really love that. Well, we, you know, we went back and we looked at, you know, obviously Pillow Talk and Lover Come Back and, and movies of that era and that style. And I think you and, you know, talked about how um, for actors, most, most times it's how to internalize that character. And this one was a, a more of an external exercise for the actors. You know, it is a specific style of the, uh, you know, that performance style in the comedies of that era that I think was, didn't necessarily come organically and naturally to the actors. It was, you know, in watching these movies and us discussing sort of, well, you wouldn't do that now, but you would absolutely do that in this movie and you should do that in this movie. Um, and, it, and it goes for all those sorts of stereotypes too, that you could do this sort of meta thing. And, and even in Mark Shaman's music, these, these things that are like, oh my God, that's, well, you wouldn't say that, but you're, you're aware that it is, you know, sort of making fun of what could be said and not said and, you know, what was allowable and not allowable in 1962. That was an interesting sort of line to walk in that movie. Yeah, I, I, um, the homages and references are so fun to, to pick out. So you, you just mentioned Pillow Talk and Lover Come Back, um, but then there are also many references to other films from that time period, you know, that touch of Mink and Funny Face and even My Man Godfrey, which is from the 30s. So could you just share some of your personal favorite classic sex comedies and screwballs? Well, listen, I... I love all of it. I mean, e even the ones, you know, Eve was the one who was like, she would show these different, you know, um, Simino Flowers is, you know, the third Doris Day Rock Hudson movie. We were sort of, we were less influenced by that, but there are all these sort of, you know, Sex and the Single Girl and all these movies of that period that we drew from, and particularly that long before I came on that Eve and Dennis drew from. Um, and the idea of trying to like at that time push the limits of what you could uh, address in terms of the sex in those movies was was really really fun um you know i i love i mean going back and and look bringing up baby and and uh philadelphia story and all i mean way way earlier period movies um i love all those movies and i think it's you know they're so incredibly well written you know they're obviously well directed whether it's howard hawks or capper going back that early but it's generally the writing that really just shines and there seems in a way, even though the performances are heightened, that there are some more honest portrayals of men and women in those movies than sometimes you get in contemporary romantic comedies. Yes, absolutely. I um the dialogue, <laughs> the dialogue is one of my favorite parts. It's so it's so zippy. And the first time that I watched it, I was enjoying myself every second while also being, you know, kind of worrying that Barbara's feminism would be sacrificed for a man, you know, as these these films kind of often go. But Down With Love, it pulls off this brilliant balancing act of preserving her views while also giving us that feel-good ending that we really, really want and crave from rom-coms. So could you just talk a little bit about the, you know, the perfection of that subversive resolution? I think, you know, that was, for us, the most important thing about how that movie, you know, plays out in the third act. Because... We loved, I mean, when I first read that script and saw that long Barbara <laughs> Novak monologue that came up, you know, I, I think when you first read it, it's like, this is fantastic. 
we have to figure out a way that this is not going to get sacrificed and not cut down. And it's such an insane long take. And then the idea to just do it as one shot. Um, and Renee's performance just, I remember being on that set and I can't recall exactly how long that monologue is, but as you know, it is not short. <laughs> and, you know, being there, sitting there by the camera, watching her do it. And you're just like, this is fantastic. She's hitting every moment of this. Please, nothing. Don't fuck this up at the end of the thing. And she just, I think that was the second one we did. It was just fantastic. There is no Barbara Novak. Huh? And I didn't fall in love with Zip Martin. I fell in love with Catcher Block. And that was a year ago, when for three and a half weeks I worked as your secretary. I don't expect you to remember me. I wasn't a blonde then. But you did ask me out. And it broke my heart to say no. But I loved you too much. I couldn't bear to become just another notch in your bedpost. With your dating habits, I knew that even if I was lucky enough to get a regular spot on your rotating schedule, I would never have your undivided attention long enough for you to fall in love with me. I knew I had to do something to set myself apart. I knew I had to quit my job as your secretary and write an international bestseller controversial enough to get the attention of a New York publisher as well as no magazine. But to this day, I don't think Renee gets enough credit for her performance in that movie and obviously in that in that monologue. Um, but it was important, yeah, that we don't build this whole story and then pull the rug out from under it and say, oh, no, we're just joking. The feminism doesn't matter at all. Um, it really is about her, this ruse, but how she grows as a result of this ruse in, in, in ways that she did not suspect she was going to um, and how to pull that off visually and also how to do it tonally that it felt earned. It's a really, really intricately constructed script that, that even and Dennis wrote. Yeah, and I, I want to draw another parallel to a contemporary film. So the cinematography is done by Fight Club's Jeff Cronenweth, who's amazing. And he has since made Gone Girl, which is another movie about a scheming blonde. And one down with love review just reads in all caps, Gone Girl Who? <laughs> if you've seen Gone Girl, were you reminded of Barbara Novak at all when you were watching it? I don't think that was the first thing I thought of when I saw Gone Girl. Um, and I and I can't speak to if Jeff Cronweth has any obsession with um, with uh, scheming blondes. I have no idea. I do remember uh, when I met with Jeff first for the movie, his first question was like, why in the hell did you think of me for this movie? Because it was so different than, you know, he was known for doing very dark, stuff, uh, except in his music video and commercial work. It was the glamour of that, that stuff, which really appealed to me. But also I knew he could give it this richness and this texture. And we were going to be shooting, you know, as I said, very artificial canvas backings. And we were going to do effects that were meant to look like rear screen projection, but were in fact green screen. And I knew Jeff technically knew all that. You know, his dad was Jordan Cronenweth, who shot Blade Runner and a bunch of other stuff, amazing cinematographer. And his grandfather, uh, back when they used to do uh, on-set still photography, they used to give Oscars for on-set still photography um, because it was a separate thing. Now they have quiet camera housing that they can shoot it as you're shooting the movie. But it used to be they would do these separate shoots. And his grandfather, I think, was the last photographer to win an Oscar for on-set still photography. But anyway, for every reason, Jeff felt like the perfect and maybe unexpected person to shoot that movie. I want to go back into those DVD special features again, because I've, again, I've, I've watched all of them. And my favorite fun fact is um, how Ewan's first question about the movie was if it would have singing in it. Yeah. And then, you know, insisting upon the musical number in the end credits since he and Renee had done Chicago Moulin Rouge. Could you, could you just walk me through his singing pitch and what 
filming that was like? That I think actually happened. I was invited to a party that was celebrating Moulin Rouge. It was actually a party for Moulin Rouge. And that's where I first met Ewan and sort of, you know, semi-pitched him this movie. And he's like, that sounds fantastic. Is there singing in it? And, and I said, there's not really singing in it. I mean, it, it's, I suppose, almost a musical, but that's something to consider. And then as you start to think about Doris Day movies, Doris Day had a, you know, a very uh, a gigantic singing career. And, and, and obviously working with Renee and Ewan, it made sense. She had just done Chicago. He had done Moulin Rouge. And we, then this was fairly late in the game because all through the shoot, they kept talking about it. And I'm a, a huge musical fan. And the idea of like, can we construct a, a musical number out of this and, and have it feel organic? And even if it didn't feel organic, we should do it. Um, but it was something they both were really, really, really into. And I love the idea. And, and, I, and, and there's a part of me that wishes we had done more of it. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's official. The battle of the sexes is over. What's that? Don't believe me? Well, here's the proof. Please give a warm welcome to the co-authors of the new book, Here's to Love, Mrs. Barbara Novak Block and Mr. Ketcher Block. Barbara, I'd like to propose a toast to the topic I dig the most. Cat, let me dust off my loving cup. Hey, bartender, fill her up. Look how the neon starts to flicker Love's like a shot but works much quicker And you're a man who can hold his liquor Cheers, cheers to love I'm an old-fashioned and you're the cherry I've got a thirst that's legendary And that's why I fired your secretary Cheers, cheers to yeah, this could be adapted into a Broadway musical. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. It has another life. I can feel it. So um, on, on the subject of Ewan, so you cast this skinny little dude as a stand-in for the six foot five Rock Hudson, and it totally, completely works, um, in part because of, of the physicality and rhythm that he brings to this role, thanks to, you know, his musical and Star Wars training. So this is your time to, to gush about working with him. I think it's been one of the great pleasures of my career to have worked with you and then you and I still talk and keep up and I, I love him because he is the kind of actor as a director that you want to work with at the time he had just done an independent movie in the UK where he was uh, it was not train spotting it was way after that but he he was playing someone who was uh, you know drugged out and I think actually another heroin addict but he was so skinny and pale and we, <laughs> and we came back and I think it was only a handful of weeks and we put him on this crash course just to get him somewhat buff. We knew, you know, he was never going to achieve Rock Hudson status, but we, I liked that about it. I felt like he, you know, he has a precision of movement, um, as you, as you mentioned, because he, he dances and he just has rhythm and there is a very choreographed nature to this movie and he's just got charisma. I mean, he, obviously he was not written and even did a script as a Scottish reporter. The voice is so sexy and his movement is so sexy. And, and, uh, and he instantly got what we were going to do. And we looked at uh, Dr. No and from Russia with Love and looked at young Sean Connery in those suits. And that to me felt like, oh, that, that's an interesting version of, of Catcher Block. And the way that and there was one particular shot, I think, in From Russia with Love and, and Sean Connery's walking down 
you know, the corridor of this airport. And I was just like, look at the way he's walking. Look at that. He's like, yeah, fucking A, look at that. And he just was so into doing it. And uh, I, I love him in the movie. Yeah, I can't say enough good things about Ewan. Oh, yeah. that's. I mean, he's how I discovered the movie. I was just going through his filmography and I was like, oh, what's this? And then I fell even more in love. Um, but I also want to talk about another another cast member whose performance I love, which is David Hyde Pierce. Um, and he's, you know, he's kind, his role is in homage to kind of the Tony Randall type roles, who was also in the film. Yes. And I'm wondering if you could, you could talk about that aspect, both working with Tony Randall and then also, you know, paying homage to him with this character. Well, David Hyde Pierce, you know, we looked at a lot of actors for the Peter McManus role and there were a lot of different versions and a lot of them really, really great, you know, uh, of how to go with that character. But if you've ever watched one episode of Frasier and seen that thing that, I mean, David is just, you know, that generation's Tony Randall and it made sense. And the way that David delivers dialogue is so precise and beautiful to me that that is its own sort of verbal choreography. Um, and he just felt like he could step into 1962 and just, he's there. He's, he's, that style is perfect. Um, and then when we had uh, you and, and David together and then Sarah and David together, that chemistry felt really, really good to me. And I love the idea of David and Ewan as this sort of, you know, pair of buddies and how different they are in almost every aspect. Uh, and again, I didn't have to explain any of this to David Hyde Pierce. He knew exactly what we were doing from, from the moment we started. And then to actually be able to get the Tony Randall, uh, who at that time I think was 80, uh, when we shot the movie was a thrill because not only from those specific movies with Rock Hudson and Doris Day, but, you know, just the odd couple and everything he's done. Another, for me, someone I grew up with and just comedic genius in my mind. Um, and, the, you know, David, I think David was not working the day that, that, uh, that Tony was on set. And of course he came by and they hung out because David also worships it because it's that same sort of precise way he delivers dialogue. There's an insane line, I think, in Lover Come Back where um, he does it. It's some crazy line that, you know, <clears throat> my father, the Commodore, would not brook insubordination and by thunder, neither shall I. This, like, what? Who who can say that line? And, da and David has that same thing that Tony has. It's just, it's incredible. So all these actors had to have this facility with this incredibly specific dialogue that even Dennis wrote. Yeah, yes. And and Sarah Paulson is also so great at this type of dialogue. I love watching her and David together. And and you know, since the film has come out, they have they have they have also both come out as gay, which adds kind of a metatextual spin to their characters watching it now. And yeah. with, I've been talking about it with some with some other queer friends and you know, it can be read as a stand-in for like lavender marriages. And um Io Edabiri of The Bear wrote uh, on Letterboxd David Hyde Pierce and Sarah Paulson in a B-plot where they essentially enter a marriage of convenience? Sign me up. That's so it. is there is there any truth to this kind of more modern reading, especially when you consider Rock Hudson's personal life as well? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. That was yeah, no, that's that's we love that about it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think, you know, David was David, neither of them were out when we made yeah. the movie, but David was, I think, out to people that, you know, in the Hollywood community. People knew. And I, I, I mean, I actually remember there was a day that um, a reporter from Out Magazine came. And I don't know if it's still the policy, but, you know, in 2002, they would not interview any actor who was not on record about 
you know, whether they were straight or gay or bi or whatever. And it was a very weird thing. And, and even with you, and I think when they interviewed him, they would ask him questions and, and you were just like, you know, it, it, it put a very, everything that it wanted to be defined in a way. And I think we sort of liked, it's none of my business at that time, whether David, you know, was out or not, but that whole aspect of, of the movie and particularly with Sarah and David at the time, we loved. I thought it, it made perfect sense. It felt like an echo. It felt like poetry to me of those, you know, original movies. Clearly that I think has aged well and I like it's it's now now more people are in on that aspect of the movie, right? I mean, and they their chemistry is so fantastic. And it's interesting when you make the choice. So we had, you know, there were there were choices in and bring it on as well that um people want defined. And I think a lot of times. I don't like to define those things so much. I like, I, I think it's, you know, movies mean different things to different people. Every individual has their own relationship with that movie and the characters in the movie. And it's not to sort of say like, we didn't make a decision. We, we made decisions, but I don't think you have to define them because then you might rob someone of their relationship with that movie. Kind of going off of that. I mean, 2003 was kind of, it was a conservative time in America and, and, I feel like this film just does not get enough credit for how smart and witty it is. And I think this is kind of a pointed question, but do you think part of why it was kind of disregarded uh, in 2003 was because of its unabashed like commitment to camp and pink and femininity and all of that fun stuff? I, I think that may be the case. I mean, it's interesting. And I'm going to go back to Bring It On for a second because Bring It On was a cheerleading comedy. I think women predominantly really wanted to see that movie Maybe they were able to drag boyfriends and husbands to that movie because they wanted to look at cheerleaders. But men, still to this day, if they come up to me and, and want to say that they like Bring It On, there's always a caveat. Like, you know, I don't want to see the movie, obviously, but you know, I went with my <laughs> girlfriend or whatever. They, they are apologetic about liking it. There's this crazy sort of masculine thing that they can't just say like, oh man, I loved it. I loved, I loved Bring It On. There was... And I think Down With Love has a similar thing. It's like, I don't know that the studio ever really figured out how to market it because I do think a, a proper marketing of that movie requires a little bit of education, you know, educating the audience on what it is. And even, and maybe that was, maybe they sort of, their data showed them like, well, if we do educate them that it's sort of an Amash or a Rock Hudson Dar's Day movie, then people really aren't going to go. I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, but I do like to think that a contemporary 2023 audience would be more accepting of the movie. Again, I, I even Dennis' script was so smart and not afraid to be with the comedy, you know, sort of stupid and silly and, and, and uh, also smart at the same time. And I thought it just had so much to say about all the things that had changed and hadn't changed, uh, you know, in the intervening years. And I wish that even Dennis wrote more. I, I, in my mind, I would love to have seen 10 versions of their their writing because they're they're incredible. Yeah. Oh, exactly. I wish we could have gotten like a billion movies with Renee and you in like this, like Doris Day and Rock Hudson would do. <laughs> yes. You know, yeah. I was yes. I, I really wish they also that they that they had written more too. And you know, to your point about modern 2023 audiences, bringing it back to the beginning, I mean, it is like it is now finding an audience, which is so, so, so exciting. And I'm just very, very happy about that. Well, no, me too. It's really gratifying. And I, I do. I want to thank you for sort of making people aware of it because you really, really have. I mean, it's, it's, it's really, really nice because I think with something like this that, you know, all these years later, 
it's like, well, can anybody access the movie? Can they see it? Does it exist if people don't know it's out there? This kind of attention is, it's so gratifying and that people are finding, you know, you know, something in the movie. And, and we are very, very hopeful that we're going to get a good, high quality, high def version of the movie out. Yes. It's my mission. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. I really hope it's a pink ray. I am. I understand if it doesn't work <laughs> out that way, but I think it would be really, really neat. I like this idea. for getting down with love with me and Peyton Reed. Maybe consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts as it helps spread the word about the show. Thank you to our crew, our editorial producer, Brian Formo, our booker, Sophie Shin, Sam for the art, Moniker for the theme music, Slim for doing the fun audio and editing, and once again, to you for listening. The Letterboxd Show is a Tape Deck production. Take The birds and the bees and the bees. This, this, this is a Tape Deck Podcast.